Welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was the blues band, one of the many highlights from Paul Jones's 
new compilation called The Blues, which covers his work in the blues band, solo work and Manfred Mann. So let's hear my chat with Paul. Hello, is that Paul? Hello. Hi, Paul. Good to see you. Thank you very much. You must be Jason then. I am, yeah. And um, I was really impressed listening to your new album, The Blues. It it must be um, one of the most important albums of your career in a way. Ooh, that would be nice to think. It came about because of coronavirus. And um, all of a sudden, I had no gigs to do. So I thought, well, I must do something sort of constructive and useful. So I I started making a list of all the songs that I'd written, all the blues songs that I'd written. And then I thought, actually, this could be an album. And uh, there's far too much for one album. So I had to sort of select. So what this is, is not so much a compilation as a selection of my um, blues material. But it, it's if, if, you, uh, if you were to count it up, there's 21 tracks in three parts, as it were. There's, there's seven tracks with the Manfred Mann, uh, seven tracks with the blues band, and seven tracks by me. In two cases, me and other people. And your roots and, and background behind the blues go back to the very early 60s where you knew Brian Jones. Yes, indeed. People ask me how we met. And the fact is, I cannot remember how we met. I made something up at one time and I said, oh, yes, we met when Alexis Corner opened the club in Ealing, West London in 1962. And then I thought, actually, that's untrue. That can't be true because... It was Brian who told me that Alexis was opening a club in Ealing, and so we went together. But uh, so I, I I met him sometime before that, but goodness knows when and where and how. The range of material as you described is is a brilliant cross section of your career, and it, it goes back to without you. And the first version of that was recorded at a Manfred Mann audition, wasn't it? That's right. It was. We auditioned for EMI sometime in 1963. I can't remember exactly when it was, but that was one of the songs. John Burgess, who was the A&R man at EMI, or one of the A&R men at EMI, and he'd obviously been assigned to do an audition with us, he said, just just, uh, get in there and play some stuff that you play. And I had written Without You, actually, uh, while I was still an undergraduate. And uh, it was, was in fact, my first written song. And it should have had three verses, but I'd only managed two. And so that's how it came out. It came out as the B-side of something or other. And, um, yeah, we, we just went into EMI and just sort of played what we would normally play on a gig. And... They said, yes, we'll take the band. On that track and the, the version that's on, on your new album, you've it's very sort of moody, a moody style. Well, it's, I suppose, yeah, moody. Um, <laughs> I, I, was, I was trying to sound like somebody older than, than I was, you know, because I was like 20 years old or something at the time. And um, I put it a little bit on the low side. But I think that a lot of the mood that's on that recording is there because of the quality of the musicianship. And uh, it's it's got Mike Vickers on flute, if I remember correctly, because he played alto saxophone mainly, sometimes other voices on the saxophone, but alto mainly. And he also played flute. 
And I think he's, yes, he's definitely on flute on that record, Without You. And also Mike Hug, who was our drummer, is playing vibraphone. Actually, he was a pianist, but <laughs> he's a multi-instrumentalist. And so he was playing vibraphone on that. And uh, vibraphone and flute were both unusual instruments on a blues song. But hey, we were nothing if not unusual. Just a hug of steel. Yeah, just a plank of wood. Give a little bit of bad luck. Mmm, just a bit of good. I could be so happy with this life of mine. But you know I'm so sad, baby. So sad. got the unmistakable voice of Brian Matthews on the, on the introduction to It Took a Little While. What was your approach for recording the BBC radio sessions? Well, I, I, I suppose we had to ask the BBC if we could use it, um, but they actually gave us a load of recordings. When I say us, I mean the, the record company, which is called Umbrella Music Limited, which actually is co-owned by all the members of the Manfred Mann group of the 60s. And, oh, and Steve Fernie, who I think is trained as a, an accountant. But anyway, he, he is uh, in a sort of management uh, CEO position in uh, as far as our record company of Umbrella is concerned. And um, he actually managed to get out of the BBC a whole load of recordings that we made four BBC radio shows in Saturday Club and the Joe Lost Pop Show and things like that. And uh, they came out as a series of, of albums. And so uh, some of the things on this album are from that uh, mine, 
they've been mined out of that particular vein, yeah. And 54321 is on there, which is a, a great example of a hybrid that takes the blues at its source but creates something original with it. That's right, yes. Uh, it, it starts as, as the blues, but it... Um, it really was inspired by Bo Diddley. I was very much a Bo Diddley fan. The man had an amazing voice. That much is remembered about Bo Diddley, but too much is forgotten about how great his voice was. I mean, his huge, resonant voice, enormous voice he had, wonderful. He also played these very eccentric homemade guitars. And he was very famous for having tunes that went, uh, which was then described in the 60s as the Bo Diddley beat, although, to be honest, that rhythm is much older than Bo Diddley. But, and he wrote very witty, funny, amusing and entertaining songs. And uh, he wrote about himself. His first hit was called Bo Diddley. And his name, well, his stage name was Bo Diddley. So you used to have to go into a record shop and say, have you got Bo Diddley by Bo Diddley? And <laughs> it was, not having written that one song of which he was the, the subject matter as well as the singer and guitarist, he then did the same thing with a, you know his next 10 recordings or so. And so it was a big influence on me. and. I wrote a song which was our second release before 54321, a song called Cock a Hoop, which was all about the Manfreds. And Ready Steady Go obviously liked it enough to ask us to come on and do it. So we came on one, one week and did it. And then they said to us, would you be interested in writing some uh, signature tune music for this program? And we said, yeah, we have a go at that. And they said, right. Here's what we want. We want the rhythm of that song, Cock a Hoop, that you've just done. Uh, we want a countdown. And we want, there must be at least 30 seconds of instrumental before the actual vocal comes in, although the countdown can be repeated during that instrumental. And that was obviously so that they could get the credits for the program running up the screen without the sound of uh, a song taking people's attention away from that. So they gave us all of that stuff. And uh, we went away and wrote 54321. And uh, having done that, we thought, hey, that, would, that, that could be our next single. And it was, and it was our first hit. <laughs> Friends. 
gusta Manfred. Was it that the groups switch away to pop, you know, do RDD or Bob Dylan covers like we've got on our side that kind of started the that things weren't necessarily going in the the full direction you wanted to go with the group? Well, do RDD would not be included in that actually, Jason. It's um Do RDD was from my record collection. It was a it was a small hit in America. Well, I say small. I mean, they had the Hot 100 in Billboard, and it I think it made about number 24 or something like that uh, in America. Um, but it wasn't hit at all in Britain. I went out and bought the Exciters version of that song, which was written by Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich. And I thought, that is a hit song. It, obviously, the record company doesn't know what to do with it. so. Um, I I played it to the other guys and they liked it. So we learned it. And then we played it to John Burgess, our producer, and he liked it. And out it came. And the, and the next, certainly the next three singles were from my record collection. It was the Shirelles' huh. Shalala, Maxine Brown's Oh No, Not My Baby, and Marie Knight's Come Tomorrow. That was the B-side, actually, of a record of hers called Nothing. And all of those were things that had got into the rhythm and blues charts in America. See, people were very narrow in the what they meant by the phrase rhythm and blues. To be honest, they still are. Mm. Some people, for some people, rhythm and blues is what um, Dr. Feelgood did in South End. And for other people, rhythm and blues is what Charles Brown did in Los Angeles. But it, all it was was a way of describing the music that would be mainly bought by black people in America. And so as far as I was concerned, Do I Diddy and those other three that I just mentioned, they they were right in the in the ballpark as far as I was concerned. They 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 might have been called sort of poppy soul or something like that or yeah. uh, whatever name you might give them. But as far as I was concerned, they were rhythm and blues. So they were what we were formed to do. It was only really when the, the Bob Dylan stuff started to come in in more than just one song at a time. And also uh, songs were being sent for the band to consideration, which just to me had no soul at all. And I, that really was the turning point for me. I had to go. There she was, just walking down the street singing. Do what did it, did it, done, did it, do. Tapping her fingers and shuffling her feet singing. Do what did it, did it, done, did it, do. She looked good. Look good. She looked fine. Look fine. She looked 
good she looked fine And I nearly lost my mind Before I knew it She was walking next to me singing Holding my hand Just as natural as can be singing We walked on To my door We walked on to my door Then we kissed a little more And on the new blues CDs, one of the great songs of the era as a, a bit of a psychedelic fan. But actually, when you hear it back through the lens of this CD, you can see the blues roots, and that's The Dog Presides. Oh, yes. The Dog Presides, it was, it was automatically assumed that it was psychedelic because nobody understood what it was about, <laughs> which is fair enough. And psychedelia was very much, you know, what was happening at the time. But to be honest, it, it, it's it's very simple. Once I, I unlock it for you, the um, the dog that presides is the his master's voice dog, who I believe was called Niffer, and he's a lovely dog sitting beside a gramophone, a wind up gramophone, and hearing a, a recording of his master's voice. Uh, hence the name of the record company. And obviously the point of that image was that the recording was so exact and accurate that the dog actually thought it was his master calling him. So that's the dog that presides. And the Ironsides referred to in the same line are session musicians. And so when it says... uh, dog he lights up all that means is the red light goes on to tell you that the tape is running in the recording studio and it's time to play so it's not psychedelic at all but it does benefit from having jack sorry no it, it jeff beck it, jeff beck yes I, I i was just about to say jack bruce but it, um jack bruce is on on the record but not that track um yeah it was jeff beck on on guitar uh, Paul Samuel Smith from the Yardbirds on bass and Paul McCartney on drums. 
it's a little known fact that Paul McCartney was a drummer before he was a guitarist. But anyway, uh, he, he was very good. And the record was being produced by Paul McCartney's girlfriend's brother, i.e. Peter Asher. Yeah. And uh, I enjoyed writing the song and I enjoyed listening to those guys playing it. And um, I enjoy listening to the record now. <laughs> a very well-known actor and featured in, in lots of great things of the era like Privilege but um, also it, it gave you a chance to write tracks and uh, the pod that came back is a, a great example that, that's on this set that actually linked in with uh, things that you did on the stage yes it really it really is it is very theatrical in terms of the the subject matter and the and the presentation as well but um, it is a blues it's a stretched blues, you know, it's, it takes a long time before you get to the, the chord that usually comes up after four bars, but it's, and then it, it takes a long time for the next chord and all that sort of thing. But so, but it's a stretched blues. And in fact, there's, there's a little melodic riff in there, which comes from Big Bill Brunsey, one of the greatest blues men ever. 
but the the song is the song is about being <laughs> song is about being dropped or cheated <laughs> or something like that but anyway uh it's a revenge song it's a song about revenge and it's kind of it's got a sort of science fiction quality to it it's it's a rare uh, an unusual song for me i don't know why i wrote it but um it was written in america right and i was i was actually appearing in a play a straight play on broadway and um i suppose that, that explains to some extent it's it's theatricality anyway i kind of like it and so that's why it's on the record <laughs> Said you do, but I don't 
And you mentioned earlier about the blues band material that, that rightly takes a significant chunk of this set. And was the blues band inspired by there was kind of some root stuff coming in the late 70s and that was your opportunity to reconnect with some of that? Yeah, the blues band, to some extent, the reason for the blue, the main reason for the blues band was very simple. I had been making my living as an actor for the last decade. From late 68, early early 69, until late 78, early 79, I had really, not quite exclusively, but 90-something percent of my working life was acting. Just now and again, somebody would say, can you come and do a session for us? And for that reason, I played on records mainly actually by Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber, but also by lots and lots of other people. And uh, I wasn't, you know, I was doing other people's music, not my own. And so I decided to form a band and uh, I decided to form a, a blues band. The other sort of factor that created it at that particular time was that <laughs> there was there was blues that had been influenced by punk going around very much the case in south end where you had to dr feel good and you know there's no no doubting that there, there was a punk element in that band and there certainly was in bands like eddie and the hot rods and there was a guy called lou lewis who was sort of mates with uh Wilco and Dr. Feelgood and various other people like that. He was a terrific harmonica player. And uh, I used to go and see him quite often. And uh, and I thought, well, if he can do it, I must be able to do it. Yes, I'm twice his age. But <laughs> or no, maybe not twice, but, you know, older. But um, also, there was a South London band called Nine Below Zero. And I used to go and see them quite a bit as well. And they don't. They didn't know it. I guess they know it now, but they were part of the reason that made me think, yeah, I could get a blues band together, and we could play the music that we like and be successful at it. Actually, it got more successful than I imagined. Shaw feels good is a great example of that melding of rock and and, and blues. Yeah, well, that came from Gary Fletcher, the blues band bassist and other instruments as well. Although all, all the lyrics were mine. Yeah, it, it is kind of, it has that kind of desperate, how fast can we go sort of thing that, that, that a lot of punk had, a lot of rock music had at that era, at that, that time. I like it. It's quite, it's great fun.
One of the, the more recent tracks is Choose or Cop Out, which is from your solo album from 2009. I think you've got Eric Clapton on that, haven't you? Yes. I um, Actually, that song was inspired by a book, an autobiography by a man called Alan Clark, who is neither the lead singer of the Hollies nor a famous Tory politician. No, he was a man who actually served in Vietnam and had his... Unfortunately, trod on a, a mine or something like that and, and lost over time the use of both legs. He actually had both legs amputated. He didn't want to do that, but I don't think he had any choice. But so he had prosthetic legs and um, he made a life for himself. Extraordinary, determined and tenacious, courageous and very good man. And having forged a life for himself he then became somebody who helped others big time and i thought that's really good and i made made a song called choose or cop out out of that and uh, i just asked eric if he would play on that uh, and uh, he did he came and played on that and he played on the title track of the album starting all over again as well which was extremely generous of him but then he was doing that a lot at the time playing on a lot of other people's music and helping them <laughs> but he did actually he did tell me he was a fan of mine Nothing about me 
that decision Or it's pointless giving you a vote or voice You're not programmed, you can have your own vision So don't you cop out, better make a choice Then you can do what you wanna do Be who you wanna be Knowing the imperative comes from you Not from them or me Just go on and get them Yes, you have been dealt a hand But you can play it any way you see Nobody gonna force your hand If you don't let them Got a queen for your boat So just go on, go get them It's your decision, baby What you do with what you've received Yes, you have been Actually, we'd, we'd worked together, and we worked together in 66 just on a, an ad hoc album called What's Shaking, which began life as a compendium of uh, blues artists, white blues artists in America. And so they had the Paul Butterfield Band, uh, which was not exclusively white, but anyway, they had Loving Spoonful, they had Al Cooper, and you know various other people. The record company, Electra Records, in the, in the person of Joe Boyd, called me and said, we've got this compilation, but we, we want something from Britain on it as well. And we can't get hold of any bands because uh, they all are uh, under tightly under contract and so on. And there is a rumor that you're going to leave Manfred Mann. And I said, no, surely not. <laughs> But it was true, I was. <laughs> it was going around. So he said, well, do you think you could actually put together a band? So I said, I'd like to have a go at that. So he said, great, call me back. So I rang Jack Bruce, who had just, like me, just let, was about to leave the Manfreds. And I said what the situation was. And I asked if he was interested, and he said, yes, he was very interested. And he said to me, who else have you got in mind? So I said, well, I thought it'd be great if we could get Eric Clapton. And what do you think about Ginger Baker? <laughs> and there was this silence for a while. And then Jack said, how much do you know? <laughs> and I said, about what? <laughs> it turns out that Cream were already secretly recording even though Jack was still in Manfred Mann. And I don't know what uh, Ginger was doing. But anyway, what happened was Eric said yes. Ginger said no, because he thought it was a lousy idea if Cream actually appeared totally, all of Cream, on a, another project while they were just getting ready to launch themselves on the public. Uh, he was probably right about that. But anyway, I can't remember whether it was... Eric's idea or mine, but we also got Steve Winwood wow. in on the job. And because Steve came on drums, we had Pete York. Yes. So that's, we had 50% of the Spencer Davis group. 
And um, we did, we also had, I should mention, a wonderful pianist called Ben Palmer, who was absolutely superb on the piano, um, but later became Cream's roadie, believe it or not. But anyway, uh, we made some tracks, and they came out on this compilation called What's Shaking? And it came out as Eric Clapton and the Powerhouse, or Eric Clapton's Powerhouse. And I thought, well, that's a... <laughs> That's a shame. I, I, you know, it should be Paul Jones's. <laughs> and then I thought, no, Eric Clapton's powerhouse is fine. Were they blues tracks that you did as well with that? Yeah. If if I ever do a, a follow up to this album, I might try and get at least one of those. However, it, Eric was wonderful on it. Obviously, Jack was. Steve was. The person who wasn't wonderful on it was Paul Jones. So. <laughs> I've never really sort of tried to push those tracks. Paul, thank you so much for your time. As I said, I was hugely impressed by the blues. It, it does feel like a really sort of authoritative album in your career. And uh, are you, you continuing to do some live dates with the Manfreds? That's very kind of you. Yes, actually, the Manfreds are going on tour on the 15th of September. And that lasts uh, right through to the 10th of December. It's not, you know, night after night after night. There'll, there'll be some days off, but um, it's a good, a good solid tour. And... Uh, We'll be doing some of the songs from from my album. That can't be avoided. And um, we'll, we'll also be doing lots and lots of Manfred's hits. 
and various other things featuring other people like Tom McGuinness will be doing some stuff from McGuinness Flint and maybe even some of his solo stuff as well. So, you know, everybody gets the, a solo feature moment in the band and uh, it's called Hits, Jazz and Blues. So you get every kind of music. It doesn't say soul. It should do. <laughs> but anyway, it doesn't say funk, but it should. But anyway, um, it, it's all that. And uh, we, we're looking forward to it. No one more eagerly and keenly than me. Uh, and when do we start? Yeah, 15th of September. Brilliant. Well, thanks again, Paul. It's been a pleasure and a privilege to talk to you. Thank you, Jason. My pleasure. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Now when you call her the phone, she hangs up on you. What can you do when you love her? Sit tight and hold your peace. You know you can't complain. Because if you do, she'll leave you for another. You got to take it. You got to take it. Be a man. Understand. You got to take it. Now when you see her one day, I'm with another guy. And nothing you can do. But grieve. Now don't you say a word She'll pretend she hasn't heard And you love her much too much to ever leave You got to take it You got to take it Just be cool, that's the rule You got to take it Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.